holiness of God, and His holiness is an unapproachable holiness, absolutely different than us. And yet the last song talks about His love, and though in the midst of His holiness that we are unholy, but we can draw near to Him. That we can draw near to Him in truth and grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And so it's great hope that we have in Christ. Well, this morning I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Mark. Um, at this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. As the rest of us open our book, Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 13. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, there's a Pew Bible close to you. And the Pew Bible, this is on page 849. Page 849 in your Pew Bible. We've been surveying the book of Mark, and in the last section that we're in, talks about faithfulness. And that's a theme that was going to be running through our message this morning. And in the context of faithfulness, we see two big ideas. That God is faithful to us, but then also that we are called to be faithful to Him. As we consider the things that surround us, um, watching the news this week, we can't help but uh, escape the fact that the, the news on the impeachment is going on. Uh, we watch about on the news, we learn about the virus in China, that they're shutting down large cities and not letting people travel because of the concerns on this virus. As we think about in Australia, there are forest fires that have burned parts of that country as big as the state of Indiana. And think about the loss of, of, of uh, forest and the loss of animal through all of that. We think about our world and we hear about wars, we hear of rumors of wars, we hear about earthquakes in um, Puerto Rico just recently, they've had another um, earthquake, it was devastating and a lot of the infrastructure is already torn up there. As we look around us, we see the growing influence of the nations of China and Russia. Uh, we hear about the Iranians seeking to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, we hear the nation of Israel in the crosshairs of their enemies in the Middle East. And as we hear of all of these different things, the question that often comes is, what does all of this mean? What is all the stuff that's going on in our world, what does it mean? Uh, and, and as we consider that, we consider what does the Bible have to say about end times? What does Jesus have to say about these kind of events? Well, this week as we continue our study through the book of Mark, uh, we're going to look this week and the next couple weeks here in chapter 13. And in chapter 13 is what's often called the Olivet Discourse. Um, it's a sermon uh, that Jesus gave while he was on the, what's called the Mount of Olives, and he's talking about what's to come. And what's happening here in the transition of Jesus' ministry is he's been teaching publicly, he's been, been confronted by a whole variety of religious leaders, and in the midst of all of this outward public teaching, he's going to shift his focus now to prepare his disciples for what's coming next. And so his focus is on the disciples and giving them confidence and hope that in the midst of everything that's going to go on and everything they're going to hear, that he is in control. And so this morning, our passage begins, and it talks about false teachers. It talks about bad news. Our passage this morning talks about persecution, betrayal, and hatred. And yet in the midst of all of these things that we're going to read about in this passage, our call is to stay faithful, to remain faithful and have our confidence anchored in the Lord. Well, let's read this passage together, Mark chapter 13, and we'll begin verse 1. Let's read this together. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one, left, one stone left on another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat in the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of all, when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the, birth, the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be, deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we read this sobering passage, Lord, we recognize that the world that Jesus is describing is the world that we live in. Lord, we live in a world where there are all kinds of trials and troubles. As we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, we see that many of them are facing significant persecutions. And Lord, as we seek to understand this passage, I pray that you would open our eyes to help us to grasp the significance of it for us today. And this wouldn't simply be a curiosity about what's going to happen in the future, but that we would take the principles that we're learning today and they would stir our hearts, that they would help us, help motivate us to be faithful to you, to be faithful to you no matter what comes because of the love that we have for you, that you have first demonstrated to us in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 1 begins as Jesus is leaving the temple. As he's leaving the temple, the previous chapter, a couple chapters, he's been in the temple. And when he entered the temple um, earlier in the week, this is the last week of Jesus' life. And as he's leaving the temple, this is probably Wednesday of the week before Jesus dies. So in just a couple days, he's going to be crucified. But as he leaves the temple, earlier in the week he came into the temple and he drove out all the people that were in the, in the courtyard selling and doing all kinds of things. He drove them out. He was also then taught in the temple. He was teaching and these, all these religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, all those different groups have been peppering him with questions. They've been challenging him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to silence him, but to no avail. Everything they're doing fails. They are unsuccessful in their efforts to discredit Jesus. And so now Jesus is leaving the temple. And in a few days, he's going to be back. He's going to be back in that area. And he is going to be falsely accused. He's going to be accused of being a blasphemer, uh, by the Jews. He's going to be charged as being an insurrectionist by the Romans, that he is uh, seeking to overthrow the king, that they're going to put him on trial. They're going to bring all these false witnesses before him. They're going to sentence him to death. He will be crucified. He will die. 
And then three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. And so all of that is on the horizon of this. And yet, Jesus, his ministry is not done. His focus in these last hours, these last days of his life is not on himself. His focus is on his disciples. The people that he's leaving behind, that he is going to give this mission to go and make disciples of all nations. But he wants them to be ready. He wants them to be prepared because trouble is on the horizon. Well, verse 1 says, It came as he left the temple. One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. And as we think about the temple at that age, I found a picture of what a, this would look, probably look like. As uh, Scholars have kind of put this together, and this is actually from a, a place, a, a museum in Jerusalem. But this is a, is, is, a, is, a fig, what, is a model of what the temple would have been like. That wall around the outside is about a mile. If you walk all the way around, it's about a mile around. Uh, in the middle of it is a temple. That big building has the holy place and the holy of holies. On either side of it are the different courtyards. That's where people would have been selling all the stuff that Jesus kicked them out of. So that's the temple. And everybody's walking by this. Jesus and his disciples. One of the disciples says, man, isn't this an amazing building? And it was. It was amazing. Herod the Great had uh, done some renovations that were probably still underway during this time. And it was a fantastic building. One scholar described it this way. They described it as a mountain of white marble decorated with gold. It's a beautiful facility. And in verse 2 it goes on. It says, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? So Jesus affirms, These are amazing. These buildings are fantastic. But he goes on and he says, There will not be one left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. And Jesus is saying, as magnificent as this is, there's coming a time where this place is going to be devastated. It's actually going to be wiped out. Well, that's all Jesus says until he starts walking across this valley and he's going to explain a little more. But if we push the pause button on history, we'll see that about 40 years after Jesus says this, it actually comes true. The, the, the prophecy is fulfilled. In A.D. 70, there was an emperor, a Roman emperor, Vespasian, uh, Vespasian who had a son named Titus. And this general Titus went, came into uh, Jerusalem and they attacked the city and they devastated it. They destroyed the temple. Uh, scholars at times say that there was not one stone left on another. It was like it was not even there. They completely destroyed it. And so what Jesus is predicting, it does come true. The temple is going to be destroyed. As we recognize this, it shouldn't surprise us, though, because when Jesus cleared the temple earlier, he came in and said, you guys have completely missed the purpose of the temple. The temple was to be a house of prayer, a place of worship, but they had turned it into a den of robbers. It was just all about this external religion. It all became that. And so Jesus says, we're done with this temple plan. And what we're going to recognize is we read in our Bibles that Jesus has a different plan, that he's going to build a new temple, that he's going to be the cornerstone. And this new temple is the church made up of living stones, of believers in Jesus Christ. And so this old, this old era is going to pass and a new one is going to come through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this gets fulfilled, but as the disciples heard Jesus saying this, they, they're walking, and verse three then, or verse four tells us, it says, "Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that all these things are to be accomplished?" 
And so they're sitting on this Mount of Olives, verse 3 says to us, and I, I put a map here. It's, it's a little difficult to see, but on where the number 2 is, that is the temple grounds today. You see the gold dome? It's called the Dome of the Rock. That is a uh, Muslim um, a holy place. It's a shrine. There's a Muslim uh, mosque there as well today. But that is where it would have been. But looking across where the number one is, as Jesus and his disciples would have left the temple, they would have walked down the hill through the Kidron Valley and then up that hill. And on that hill, even today, it is covered with olive trees, olive groves. And as they would get to the top of that, that is the Mount of Olives. So Jesus and his disciples are sitting, they're looking across this valley and looking at the city of Jerusalem. And they're looking at the temple, and Jesus is saying, it's all going to be destroyed. And so as they look across there, then Jesus goes on. And the number, in verse 4, the disciples want to know two questions. They want to know, when is this going to happen? And what are going to be the signs that we know it's going to happen? And so, as we look at this in verse 5, then he goes on, and he says in verse 5, he says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So as we begin here, he's not, he's not answering the question. They want to know when. When is this going to happen, Jesus? What are going to be the signs? And that's not where Jesus begins. He begins by teaching them about how they need to be prepared. He's teaching them not how to set your watch on the end times, how to set the calendar and say, okay, it's going to happen on this date. Because that's what the disciples want to know. And that's often what we want to know, right? We study the end times. We want to know, well, when is Jesus coming back? Is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? How are we going to know? Are there going to be some real clear signs that's like, all right, I've set my end times calendar and clock, and now it's ticking down. Tick, 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 tick. It's getting closer and closer. And wake up and say, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm ready. Jesus doesn't tell us that. He doesn't give us that kind of detail. He gives us enough detail to know that it's coming, that the end is coming, but not to give us the kind of precision date and time that we want because the purpose of prophecy listen the primary purpose of prophecy is not to give us all the details so that we can know exactly when it's coming the purpose of prophecy is to give us hope and to call us to stay faithful because throughout the Bible, we think, when is prophecy given? Prophecy is most often given throughout the Bible when the people of God are hurting. They're under persecution. Things are really hard. And it's in those times that God talks to us about the future. And he does that because he doesn't want us to lose hope. Because when we look around and the world's falling apart, what's it easy to conclude? I mean, is God even really involved in this? Is God at work in our world? Is I mean, has he lost control? I mean, we watch the news, we look at what's going on around us, and man, it looks like our world is a mess. And can God really be in control if things are this much of a mess? Well, as Jesus begins to talking about these end times, he's helping us to understand this is all according to his wise and grand plans. And so Jesus begins to help them understand this. And he's telling them, he says in, in the middle of verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. And this is what we need to hear. As we listen to what's going on in our world, that we need to recognize that we must not be led astray. 
that we must not be led astray into other directions, led away from Jesus. And the first part of being led astray is being led astray by false teachers. It says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So there are people going to show up and saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you need to follow. Uh, in the word here that says, I am he, that is in the Greek, it's ego me, which means I am, which points us back to the Old Testament truth that God said to Moses in the burning bush, I am. And now Jesus says, I am. And he says, other people are going to come and say, they are the one, they're the Messiah, follow me. And we think, would people really follow a false Messiah? Oh, Yeah. I mean, I think one of the clearest things that several years ago, um, down in Texas, the Branch Davidians, you know, this guy named David Koresh said he was the Messiah and had a bunch of people that followed him. I mean, followed him to their deaths. I mean, the government got involved. That facility was burned down. I mean, messy stuff. But in our day, we hear that. And in the days of Jesus, in Acts chapter 35, as the church leaders or, or the Jewish leaders are trying to figure out, what do we do with this growing church? This is becoming a problem. And it says in Acts, 30, Acts 5, it says, Men of Israel, take care about what you do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up. So there's this guy who's risen up, claiming to be somebody, claiming to be a Messiah. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. A false Christ, a false Savior shows up. Another false savior shows up in Acts chapter 21, verse 38. As Paul's traveling around teaching, somebody, they ask Paul, he says, are you not the Egyptian who led for a revolt and 4,000 men out into the wilderness? So throughout history, we have people showing up claiming to be the Messiah. And so what we need to recognize is we must not be deceived by false saviors. Don't be deceived. And the reason why we shouldn't be deceived is because Jesus has told us what it's going to be like when he comes back, and we're not going to miss it. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He's coming back. Okay, so he's going to descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with a voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet sound of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You think we'll miss that? trumpet of heaven, voice crying out, dead people rising from the dead. We're not going to miss it. Right? So when we think about being led astray, we need to recognize that the, the coming of the Messiah is going to be clear. And so we think, well, what's this have to do with us? Well, we need to be warned against false messiahs so we're not deceived. But I would argue, too, that, that, that on, a, on a different sense, we're easily led astray by false saviors. Not someone claiming to be, I'm Jesus, but all kinds of things that want to compete with us and say, I'll give you what you want. You want satisfaction? I'm, I'll be the source of your satisfaction. Maybe a relationship, maybe some security. Maybe think, well, I, I want security. I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. Okay, a job says, I'll do that for you. A big bank account says, I'll do that for you. And we think, well, my hope is in my bank account. My hope is in a relationship. My hope is in all of these different things. And as we consider this false Savior that we are often confronted with, we need to be careful that we're not led astray 
Because it's very easy for us, like the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, to give lip service to God, to say, yes, God, I believe you. Yes, God, I trust you. But ultimately, we're just trusting ourselves. I'm trusting myself. I'm trusting my bank account, my wisdom, my knowledge, the things I think are going to give me satisfaction. I'm trusting all that. And so we may not be deceived by somebody saying, hey, I'm Jesus. We're very easily led astray by all kinds of voices that will say, I'll give you what you want. And we were led astray from Christ. Well, as he continues in this passage, he goes on then in verse 8 and says, For nation will rise... Well, let's look at verse 7. You will hear of wars and rumor of wars. Do not be alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So wars, rumors of wars. Then he goes, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. As we are called not to be led astray, that we're not to be deceived by false saviors, we also must be careful that we're not distressed by breaking news. I think about our 24-7 news cycle. What's showing up on the news cycle? Wars, rumors of wars, political, economic problems. You know, you watch it for 10 minutes and breaking news, dun, 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 and then, and then the latest thing comes up. And you're like, well, I've got to watch some more. And then I'm watching it for a little bit, and you're about to turn it off, and then dun, 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 breaking news, commercial comes on, and I've got to watch some more. Right? And I've got to watch all this. And if we're not careful, it's very easy for us to look and see what's going on around the world, which are significant things going on in our world. I mean, there are some big, big things. I mean, the impeachment of a president, that's a big deal. Viruses that shutting down cities of like 11 million people, that's a big deal. But it's so easy for us just to watch that and just start wringing our hands and thinking, man, this is bad. This is bad. I'm not sure what we're going to do. And we're wringing our hands and worrying about what's going to happen and wondering what this all means and how is it going to affect me. And as we begin this to, to, to allow that news to be causing us distress, that often we shrink our world down and all I think about is how bad this is and how it's going to affect me. And I lose sight of the fact that God is at work in all of this. God has not taken a vacation. God is not up in, in heaven watching Fox News and thinking, well, I didn't know that was happening in Russia. I didn't know the House did that. I didn't know the Senate thought that. He's not worried. right? God is above all of this. He is at work in all of this, and He has been since the day of creation. We have a sovereign God who's working all things together for, for, for good, for the good of His people. That's us. And these things that we see on the news, while yes, they should, we should be rightly concerned, but most of them, if we turn the news off this week and we turn it on next week, guess what's changed? Nothing's changed, really. Right? And we think, well, I don't, I'm, I'll miss out on something. I'm, I'm going to miss out. I won't be in the know. Well, if that knowing is causing you distress, turn it off. Turn it off and open your Bibles and you can read about it here. Okay, I'm going to turn on the news. What am I going to hear about? Wars and rumors of wars. Yep, that's what's on there. And then there's a nation rising against nation. Yep. Kingdom against kingdom. Democrats versus Republicans. Yep, see that? Earthquakes in various places. Yep, see all that? And I, and I turn the news on. I hear all that. And I say, well, that's, that's nothing new. But what's it mean? 
that then becomes a question. What does it mean if Jesus isn't telling them when he's coming and the specific signs that we can set our clock? What does all of this mean? Well, he tells us in, at the end of verse 8, it says, These are but the beginning of birth pains. An interesting illustration, birth pains. Who has birth pains? A pregnant mom, right? Because what's coming? A baby's coming, right? This baby in a mother's womb is growing and growing. That gets to a point where that kid wants out, right? I want out of here. And so God, in his design of a body, has made certain hormones go and all this kind of stuff. And then labor starts, right? And labor starts with contractions. And... Um, not experienced those, but understand they're pretty painful, right? We understand that process of giving birth is painful. As we think about those birth pains, what are those birth pains indicating? That the baby's on the way. What are the birth pains of earthquakes and wars and all of this? Those are birth pains telling us that, that something is about to happen. And what is it that's coming? In many ways, we could describe it as what is coming is, is that a new age is coming. And this new age, God is going to give birth to a new age. And as the birth comes in that new age of, of Jesus' return and all that he's going to do next, as all that gets closer and closer, we have these contractions. And the contractions are all these world events and these things that are, that, that are hard. And we look and we hear of a pregnant mom screaming because it's so hard that we look around the world and we see the world groaning because of what's coming. But just as we think about a mom who is pregnant, that these, these birth pains, how do they come? Well, three things about birth pains. First of all, if you're going to give birth, they're inescapable. Right? The birth doesn't come without birth pains. That's Genesis 3 is where all that comes from, right? And so we realize they're inescapable. The trouble in our world is inescapable trouble. As we would think about birth pains as well, they're unpredictable, right? So the, the, the mom is, 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 is beginning to have contractions and doesn't know when the next one's coming. They just hit, right? And they hit at unexpected times. As we read in the news and as we read about events taking place, they happen at unexpected times. We're often surprised. We're surprised because of the timing. Not that they come, but because of the timing. But not only are the birth pains inescapable and unpredictable, the birth pains also have increasing intensity. And as we look at our world, and as we think about what should we expect as time goes on and the closeness of a new age comes, what should we expect? We should expect birth pains to be getting a whole lot worse and a whole lot closer together. And that's the things we see in our world. And we see that in our world. And so we say, well, does that mean that the end of the time when Jesus is going to come back, does that mean it's close? And my answer is yes. Closer than it was. Right? But, but the birth pains aren't to tell us the timing. So the mom who then birth pains begin, a mom can't set her clock and say, okay, in six hours I'm going to have this child. Birth pains. Click, 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 click. Six hours ago, they have the kid. Is that how it works? Nope. They come and labor sometimes lasts a long time, right? Long hours, and that's a really long time. But what do the birth pains do? They're telling us, this baby's coming. And what are the birth pains of our world telling us? That this is coming. 
the, the, the things we see in the news are reminders to us not to tell us when Jesus is coming back, but that he is coming back so that we don't get distracted so that we don't just get focused on our own lives and just, oh yeah, I'm just going to live for myself and not really thinking about Jesus. As we hear on these news things, we shouldn't just think of them as, well, that always happens. No, these are birth pains reminding us of the promises and the truth that Jesus is coming back, that this, this new age is coming, and a charge for us to stay faithful that we would stay faithful, that we would not be led astray, led astray by false saviors, not be distressed by breaking news. Well, Jesus continues in verse 9. He says, but be on your guard. Okay, be alert. Be on your guard. Things are changing. And he says, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who will speak, but the Holy Spirit. We think about the danger of being led astray when the things get hard. The other danger we have is being pushed away that we're led astray by news, we're led astray by false teachers, but the other part of it is that we would be pushed away. That we would be pushed away in the first part of this passage, that we would be pushed away by persecutions. That persecutions and hardships would push us away. That in this passage it talks about councils and synagogues. Those are the Jewish leaders. As we see the church, God give birth to the church, the church comes to life, that they're early church disciples. They're being brought before governors. They're brought before the kings. They're brought before the Jewish courts. So to come before Jewish and Gentile courts, that, that trouble comes. And Jesus says, be alert. He says, be alert. Don't be surprised. Listen, he, he's talking about here, people are going to be drugged before courts. Why? It says, for my sake to bear witness before them. The persecution that he's talking about coming is persecution because of the gospel. It's because that we hold tightly to the claim that, that Jesus alone is God, that we cling tightly to the truth that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, that we hold tightly to the fact that Jesus alone is our King and that we don't bow our knee to other kings. We're going to certainly work to be good citizens, but we're never going to bow our knee to someone in submission under, over Jesus. He is our king. And because of that, people are persecuted. We see that around the world today. There are thousands of Christians in jails in North Korea today because of the gospel. They're being persecuted, brought before judge things. They're put on trial because of their faith. And listen, if we're put on trial because of our faith, the response should be, well, I hope they would find us guilty. I mean, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> I don't want to have the consequences of it. But, but, I mean, maybe think of that today in your own life. I mean, if, suppose our government made there some snap and something happens and they decide they're going to put people on trial for being Christians. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Everything, well, I pretty much like... Everybody else at work and unbelievers, I mean, I don't say much about Jesus. I don't, I mean, I come to church on Sunday morning, but 
that wouldn't get you convicted because lots of unbelievers come to church on Sunday mornings. Would there be enough evidence? Because you love the Word of God and you're reading the Word of God and you're working on it. You love the Word of God and you love God, so you're getting His Word hidden in your heart. You love God and you want others to know, so you're talking about the gospel. You're serving in, in ministry to help others to learn about Jesus. That, that, that you're, 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 they look at your checkbook and your finances and think, man, they're serious about this. They would look at your schedule and time and think about how you're spending it. That they'd be said, yep, you're sent, you're, there's enough here to convict you. This might be a question to ask yourself. If you were convicted of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to lock you up? Well, as he talks about it, there is going to be a case. And there will be people locked up. And he says, but he says that they're going to come before this. And he says it's not just about these people being brought before court and we're on trial. But he says, you're being brought before court for my sake to bear witness. And he's saying here, listen, you go to court, they're going to, they're going to put you on trial for your faith. Use that as a witnessing opportunity. Talk about the fact that why am I here? I am here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has rescued me, he has saved me, he has forgiven me of my sins and given me new life, and my life has been about seeking to honor him rather than to honor myself. And I'm seeking to be a good citizen, I'm seeking to be a good neighbor, so I don't understand why I'm on trial here apart from my faith. But I'm not wavering on my faith because this Jesus who died for my sins and rose on my behalf, He'll forgive you as well if you repent and believe the gospel. That's the purpose of these trials. We think about Paul the Apostle standing before all these different courts and all the different trials that he continually proclaimed the gospel when he's on trial. He wasn't defending himself. He said, no, I really don't believe that stuff. Well, you have that a little bit wrong. I'm really not that serious about Jesus. Now, if I'm on trial for the gospel, that we proclaim the gospel. And so he says in verse 10 then, he says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And those who study in times, this verse has really been a challenge because we think, well, what does that mean that the gospel is going to be first preached to all nations? Does that mean that all people groups in the world must hear the gospel before Jesus comes back, like before the tribulation? Is it like at the end of the tribulation? When is that? What, what timing does that have to be? And, and that may be a study for another day, but what we understand it saying is that all people, all people groups will hear the gospel. And we read in the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation chapter 14, we read about every nation, every tribe, every tongue, people there from all of them, praising Jesus, praising Jesus for the forgiveness that he has given to them. And as we recognize this gospel, and so oftentimes we think, well, when is Jesus coming back? Is it before everybody hears? Is it after? Here's a question I think we need to be asking. I don't think we need to be asking the question, does the gospel have to be preached to every people group before Jesus returns? I think we need to ask a different question. I think we need to ask the question, how can we get the gospel to every people group as quickly as possible? You see, that's a question we can do something about. And to be passionate about realizing that there are people on our planet that don't have any access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They live in a city, huge cities, and the gospel witness is almost extinct. There's almost none there in parts of the world. And we recognize that, that those are people who are lost, 
who don't know Christ and they don't know the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would love them enough to help them to know this God, this one that we worship. That we would be asking ourselves, how do we get this gospel? See, then the next question you often get to ask is, well, what about those people that never hear the gospel? Well, listen, let's just change that a little bit. Why don't we make sure that question doesn't have to be asked in the next generation? That we recognize that everybody's going to have an opportunity to hear the gospel because Jesus says, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. And I'm burdened sometimes that as Christians, as believers in Crawfordsville, Indiana, in America, that we, we, man, it's just about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and me. And as long as, man, I just need to get through another day and I hope Jesus can help me do that. And that's as big as our world is. That's not God's mission for us. God doesn't simply save us to make our lives a little better. He saves us and rescues us to send us to go. And yet we're often so content just to come to church, read our Bible, go home, have a nice meal, and not think about it for another week. Well, Jesus says there's coming a time where that's really not going to be the case. He goes on in this passage. He tells us not to worry about in that hour if you do get arrested what you're going to say. That, that, listen, one author has said this. That is not an excuse for lazy preachers or lazy Bible teachers to say, well, I'm just going to wait and God's going to give me what I need in the moment. No, that's for the fact when you're put on trial and you're going to stand and bear witness to others that you don't worry about what you say. You just show up and be faithful and God's going to help. That's the promise of that part of the passage. Well, he goes on and he says, he talks about how bad it's going to get. He says in verse 12, Brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's something that would push pretty hard, wouldn't it? When we think about not being pushed away, that, that we, we cling tightly to the gospel, the tight, more tightly we cling to the gospel, the more other people are going to push back. That we not only have to hold tightly to the truth of the gospel, we have to hold tightly to our love for the Messiah. I mean, think about this. I mean, it is hard to conceive of, isn't it, to think that your siblings or your parents would sell you out even to death because you love Jesus. I mean, that's hard. I mean, in some ways, it's like, okay, bring it on, world, I can take it. But then what if it's somebody that has known and loved you since your birth, and they're so hostile to Jesus and the Christianity and the gospel that they would turn you over? And that we would recognize, what would we do in that hour? I'm on trial for being a Christian. Others have betrayed me. They're proclaiming it. Do I try to get off? Do I try to say, it's not really true? And, and many times throughout church history, there have been people who are persecuting Christians and would say, listen, if you simply renounce Jesus, you can go. All you have to do is say the words. What would you say? Well, I'm going to save it and save my rear end and go back to following Jesus. 
Or do you say, I can't deny my Savior. Whatever it costs, I'm going to follow him. And he says in this, he says in verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. I mean, in many ways, we can think about persecution and we can say, I would be willing to die for Jesus. And I, I, think that, I think most of us would be willing to die for Jesus. Maybe a more pressing question is, would I be willing to be unpopular for Jesus? Thought of as an enemy of good people because you love Jesus. Shunned. And I think oftentimes you say, you know what, just shoot me. That's done. But living for Jesus in an umbrella or in a context where persecution comes, and he says we'll do it for his name's sake. And we stand firm. Why? Because we love him. And why do we love him? We love him because he has first loved us. And then he finishes this passage with a statement that is very strong. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's a promise. You endure, you will be saved. And you think, well, what, is that Bible, is that teaching us that, that I have to, that endurance saves me? No. We recognize we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. But when we're saved by Jesus, he holds tightly to us so that we can hold tightly to him. You see, what that means is like, okay, Jesus, he's saying, if persecution comes, he's saying, hold tightly, stay faithful, don't let go. And you're thinking, I don't know if I can do this with my family hating me and all these things going on and everybody, I'm being brought before juries and all of this, and I don't know if I can hang on anymore. And Jesus' response would be, you can. Hang on because I'm holding on to you. And the reason why that the saved will persevere all the way to the end is not because we've got so much strength, but because we love Jesus and he's got us. And if he's got us, we're not going anywhere. Right? If he has captured your heart, and if you love him more than you love yourself, if you're truly born again, you're not going anywhere. And your life is being shaped by that gospel, by the good news of the gospel that Jesus has loved me, and because he's loved me, I'm going to live my whole life for him. Whatever comes, I'm his. Jesus is calling us in this passage to stay faithful. To stay faithful in the midst of, uh, of false saviors luring us away. That we would stay faithful even when we're hearing all this news and things that are hard. When persecution comes upon us, when betrayal comes upon us, that we will stay faithful faithful because we recognize that endurance and this holding tightly to him is the fruit of genuine faith it's the real thing how do you know it's the real thing it lasts it lasts to the end so the challenge for us this morning is to stay faithful to don't be led astray don't be pulled away don't allow the things in the news to cause us to wonder when it's going to happen, but to know that Jesus is coming back. And to know that he is, this is all coming to an end sometime. Maybe in our lifetimes, maybe not. But we are going to stay faithful.
And that would be the charge to you this morning. I would encourage you as we close this morning to examine your heart and to think, do I truly love Jesus more than anything else? And think, why should I do that? Because he has first loved you. And he's demonstrated that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us and you have given us a security a security in you that allows us to be transformed. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be led astray, that you'd help us not to be pushed away from or some here about our own relationship with you, and that is, that they would spend this time to receive our offering in a moment, that they would use this time as a time of reflection, a time to think about the relationship with you and even talk to you, maybe seeking forgiveness, maybe talking to you about surrendering their lives, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would hold tightly to the gospel, that we cling tightly to the truths that you love us and you've given us your son. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.